calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Lauren Foster and this is Take 15. So if you've ever wanted to learn more about the intersection of the mind and the markets, you're in for a real treat today. Um, my guest spends a lot of time looking at money, mind and meaning through a psychological lens. So Dr. Daniel Crosby is Chief Behavioral Officer at Brinker Capital. He's a psychologist and a behavioral finance expert. He's also the author of several books, including The Laws of Wealth and Behavioral Investor. And he also hosts a very popular podcast called Standard Deviations. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you, wonderful um, to be here. Thank you so much for being here. So before we get started, what exactly is a Chief Behavioral Officer? So this is a question that I get a lot. It's yeah. not anything that most people have heard about. Uh, but in my role as Chief Behavioral Officer, uh, I am charged with developing uh, training, tools, and technology to help advisors help their clients to make better decisions. So we see uh, behavior as the bottom-most turtle of, of financial well-being, and that's at the very center of everything we do. And so I am trying to put practical tools take things, take the best ideas from the ivory tower, bring them down and put them on the desks of, of everyday people. That sounds great. Well, let's get practical and talk about investor behavior. Um, you believe there are four main issues in psychology that affect investing decisions. Mm -hmm. What are those uh, and why do they matter so much? Well, so a lot of my work has been around taking the uh, very, very, uh, the, the growing list of behavioral biases, now well over 200, wow. and condensing them down. Because exactly, wow, like what, what do you do uh, when you tell someone there's 200 ways that you can uh, mess up your financial life? It's not very useful. So what I've done and what I did in The Behavioral Investor, as I looked at that universe of 200, and found just about a handful of, of common larger tendencies that underpin these. So the first of these is emotion, uh, which is emotion tends to trump rational thinking or logic when we're making decisions, especially around money. Mm -hmm. um, money is uh, the number one offender here. It's worse than anything else uh, with respect to stirring up our emotions. Uh, the second is, is ego, which is the, the multitudinous ways in which our overconfidence plays into this. Uh, we think we're different, we think we're luckier, we think we're smarter, we think we're better, uh, and that's how that plays in. Uh, the third is attention, which is our tendency to confuse uh, luridness or, or salience is the psychological term uh, with probability. Uh, so we don't assess things in terms of how likely they actually are, but we instead uh, assess them in terms of how easy they are to recall. Uh, and then finally is conservatism. Um, we make 12.7 million decisions each year. It's a lot. Um, it's a lot. It's, you know, tens of thousands a day. Uh, so it strains credulity to think that all of these decisions get made uh, even-handedly by weighing out uh, subjective expected utility the way that economists think. So instead, a lot of what we do is just do what we've always done before. Uh, and so this is conservatism, our, our tendency to confuse what we've done in the past with what we ought to do in the future. 
uh, our tendency to confuse uh, what we know with what's safe. So one of the themes of your new book is that some of the things that served us well from an evolutionary standpoint don't necessarily serve us well as investors. Can you give us an example of that? Yeah, I think the, the primary example is, is loss aversion and risk aversion. You know, we forget that we were not the uh, only humanoid species uh, on the block for, for many years. There was many as 12. There are Neanderthals, Denisovans, a group called the Hobbits uh, in, in Indonesia. Uh, and the reason that we lived on and they're all gone now uh, is not because we had better art or better culture or we were wiser. Uh, we'd, we'd like to think so, but it's none of these things. Uh, the fact is we were more fearful. <laughs> we were uh, better risk managers. Uh, and when they were out doing brave, bold things, we were laying back a bit. And so that has uh, led to our evolutionary success. We've, we've propagated the species where they have not. Uh, uh, but that doesn't make us good investors. In, in fact, it makes us quite, quite poor investors. And so one of the themes that you'll, you'll see throughout the behavioral investor is the things that are required for us to thrive as a species uh, and the things that are required for us to thrive as investors are, are almost always uh, diametrically opposed. Interesting. So we're having this conversation at a wealth management conference. So let's, I guess, flip the focus to from the financial advisor. Uh, we know that there's an ongoing <laughs> shift to goals-based investing. Um, how should advisors build rules-based behavioral portfolios for their clients? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of things I, I think to understand. You know, the goals-based piece is, is a very big part of it. Uh, and I think when we talk about goals-based investing, as, as simple and as intuitive as the concept is, I think we're leaving a lot of value on the table because we haven't, as an industry, tapped into the emotional core of this. I think we take at face value, you know, hey, I want to retire or I want to send my kids to college and we don't do enough digging. So I think we need to get to a place of emotion because just as surely as I talked about before, emotion can be used for, for ill, emotion can also be used for good. And one of my favorite uh, studies that I cited in my first book talked about how low-income savers who looked at a picture of their children for five seconds before making a, a financial decision saved 200% more than those who did not. And so just the simple act of priming their decisions with their goals, with what mattered most to them, I really did a lot to constrain their bad behavior. So, you know, step one is tapping deeply into our clients' why, tapping into that, uh, the, the goals-based piece of that. And then the second piece you talked about was a, a rules-based system. Um, one of the simplest things we can do as behavioral investors uh, is to make our quirks work for us. Instead of trying to overcome them at every turn, mm -hmm. we can actually lock in uh, those quirks in a positive way. One of the quirks about our behavior, as I mentioned earlier, is that we're prone to the status quo, we're prone to laziness and inaction. That laziness and inaction can lead you to never get started saving for retirement, but once you get started, uh, you can lock that in. You can lock in that same laziness and status quo bias and, and let it lead you to a good place. So we need to automate the process. It's so much easier than trying to execute willpower at every turn, which we're just candidly never going to do. So I love that you used the word quirk because this is a good segue into something rather quirky. You gave a TEDx talk that was titled 
Can being weird make you rich and happy? Can it? Well,、uh, it's it's worked for me. So it's worked. It's、uh, being weird. I think is one of my、uh, greatest professional assets. But the reason、uh, that was about contrarian investing, among other things.、Uh, but I think we live in a world where、uh, things are、uh, highly processed,、uh, very、uh, astutely packaged. Everything's branded. Everyone is a brand. And I think in such a homogenous world,、uh, being a character. Uh, can lead you to to some great success. Just that sort of on the personal front, I think on the professional front and on the investing front,、uh, successful investing is being right. It requires two things:、uh, you have to take a contrary opinion and you have to be correct. So you have to be a little weird. You have to be、uh, willing to swim against the current. But I advocate in that talk for principled contrarianism because I think everyone thinks that they're a contrarian. Everyone. <laughs> Thinks that they're different, and I liken it in one of my books to when I was a kid. I was in a punk band, and I used to wear, you know, black shirts and old English lettering, and have, you know, dyed green hair and all of this.、Yeah. Um, and I thought, if you would ask me, I would have said I was very much a contrarian. But I was wearing a uniform. I mean, I was wearing a uniform just as surely as a, you know, a kid at a prep school wears a uniform. Uh, and so, principled contrarianism,、uh, contrarianism swimming against the flow when it's based on deeply held principles, I, I think, is a great way to live a, a profitable and satisfying life. What about the risks of being on the hedonic treadmill?、Uh, something you also talk about. So, explain that a little bit. Yeah. So, the hedonic treadmill is this、uh, this idea that as we gain greater affluence, as we gain gain greater wealth,、uh, our expectations and our, our living tends to rise、uh, with that. Such that it never really、uh, sinks in, and this is another place where I think rules and automation uh, really uh, make a name for themselves.、Uh, because、uh, I mean, I have spoken very candidly about my own poor decisions around this, and as I、uh, began to be more financially successful throughout my career, I, I went and notably bought a big house. That was kind of my my thing because I wanted to to show the world. Um, that I had arrived. Well, the tricky part about a big house is、uh, it's one of the worst ways to buy happiness、uh, because what was、uh, an extravagance to me the first time I saw it, what was absolutely this gorgeous、uh, house the first time I saw it,、uh, is now you know just where I throw my dirty socks. And so、um, we very very quickly become acclimated to things. And so I think one of the ways that we can combat the hedonic treadmill and avoid that lifestyle creep is to just lock in set rules about as your income grows, you save a greater and greater proportion of that income and never,、uh, never go to that next level of consumption、uh, because I can tell you from the research and from personal experience、uh, that it's not going to make you happy. So I mentioned in the intro that you've written several books,、mm. um, and one of them is quite an unusual. Book. It's a children's book that's titled "Everyone You Love Will Die,"、mm-hmm. and that sounds really dark.、Um, but I've also heard you say that the title is controversial, but ultimately it's a, a an optimistic book. So why did you write it, and, and do the lessons apply more broadly than just in the children's realm? I, I think so. So I am the father of three young children, and when when my children come to me with with difficult questions. Uh, one of the ways that I've found it palatable to present my response to them、uh, is、uh, by by writing poetry. So that's just sort of how I talk to my kids
uh, about the tough things they're exploring uh, in the world. And we had a family friend die. And so I'm approached with all these questions about impermanence and, you know, where do people go? And um, so I, I wrote this poem and the way that it ends is, uh, yes, everyone you love will die, but you're here today. And so am I. And it's about, uh, uh, it's influenced deeply by my uh, study of existential philosophy and stoic philosophy. Um, and just this belief that an understanding and a deep apprehension of our impermanence and the fact that we won't always be here uh, is one of the greatest catalysts for living a meaningful, productive uh, life uh, that, that blesses the lives of those you come in contact with. And so that's something I try and keep front and center, uh, not in a morbid way at all. You know, I actually, <laughs> I didn't wear it here, but I have a pin, a lapel pin that's a skull and it says memento mori, and it's based on this uh, this Latin phrase, which basically means remember that you are a man. And so back in uh, back in the the times of of the Roman emperors and things, they would they would have a conquest and they would parade the victorious general around the Colosseum, but there would be a slave put in the back of the chariot who was to to whisper to this conquering hero memento mori effectively remember you're just a man mm. it's a good day uh, but it won't always be like this and this is something that can chase in investors this is something that can then push us on uh, to live with greater purpose and intentionality uh, and it's something that influences my every day but not in a depressing way uh, no matter how shocking the title may be so as we wrap up here, um, I just want to close with something. I, I listened to one of your podcasts and I picked up on that particular podcast that you love to bake, mm. that you have a collection of family recipes or recipe cards. And that made me think of um, Harold Pollock's index card mm -hmm. of financial advice. And for those who don't know what it is, it's he famously said that the really good advice could fit in a three by five index card. So if you had to write your recipe card for investment advice, what would be on it? Okay. Step one, learn just enough. If you, uh, there is a point of diminishing returns in finance uh, that approaches almost no other field I've ever seen. Uh, if you read five or six of the right books, you can know 99% of everything you need to know. Uh, and you could spend the rest of your life chasing that extra 1% with, with varying degrees of success. So if you read the right five or six books, you would know everything you need to know. So, you know, know just enough is, is step one. Uh, automate what you know is step two, lock in that laziness. And step three is uh, go do something more important. Um, I think a lot of people, it's funny for someone to say who spends so much time thinking about and talking about money and psychology, uh, I think money is uh, necessary but not sufficient to, uh, to lead a good life. And I'm always uh, slightly disappointed when people spend too much of their lives uh, focused on the study of and the accumulation of wealth. So learn just enough, lock in good behavior, and then, you know, go, go paint a picture, go sail a boat, go hug your kids, go do something else that matters a, a lot more than, yeah. than money. So the learn just enough just begs one more, one final question. Yeah. If it's just the sort of four or five books, what are your? Well, they're my books, of course. Yes. No, no, no. If you had to pick your top two or three, what, what would be on that? that list? Oh, so uh, what works on Wall Street uh, would be would be right at the top of that list. Um, uh, Joel Greenblatt's book, uh, "You Can Be a Stock Market Genius," uh, would be. It's a horrible title. It's a it's a great book. Uh, my books, I think, stand up. The Little Book of Behavioral Investing uh, by James Montier it would be uh, on that list as well. 
Uh, and any of Charlie Ellis's books, I think, would also make uh, great additions to that list. Great. Well, on that note, we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much, Daniel, for joining us. Uh, thank you for watching. If you're accessing this content as a podcast, thanks for listening. You can subscribe on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review or a rating. It helps others find the show. Thanks. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.